Welcome once again to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. And I'd also like to say that if you would ever like to reach out, ask me to talk about something, anything like that, you can email evidencebasedradio at gmail.com. So tonight we're going to be focusing on anthropology and archaeology, mostly anthropology, and we're going to move chronologically forward in time, starting 300,000 years ago in Europe, to talk about a new understanding of the lives of Stone Age people who lived in what is now Schoeningen, Lower Saxony in Germany. And so a Tübingen University and Senckenberg and the Senckenberg Center for Human Evolution and Paleo Environment team analyzed flint chips found in the area dating back to 300,000 years ago. When people resharpened flint cutting tools, they dropped tiny chips of flint, which the team is now analyzing to learn more about how wood was processed by early humans. The flakes of flint come from a lower Paleolithic site, and the findings were reported in the journal Scientific Reports. The 57 stone chips and three bone implements for resharpening stone tools were discovered around the skeleton of a Eurasian straight-tusked elephant that died on the shore of a lake. We can prove, among other things, from these finds that people, probably Homo heidelbergensis or early Neanderthals, were in the vicinity of the elephant carcass, says Dr. Jordi Serengeli, director of the archaeological excavations in Shonenjin. This site is located about two meters below the famous site of the world's oldest spears, he added. And so there's, uh, I don't think there was evidence that they had killed the um, elephant, but they might have just uh, been able to uh, sort of come across it as a bit of a windfall. Tupinjin researcher Flavia Venditti The study's lead author notes that information about the Stone Age is mainly told through finds of tools. But she notes that not only are the tools themselves important, but the stone chips, most of them smaller than one centimeter, can also tell us much about how these people lived. Through a multidisciplinary approach that included technological and spatial analysis, the study of residues and signs of use and methods of experimental archaeology, we were able to obtain more of the Stone Age story from these stone chips, Venditti said. The small flakes come from knife-like tools. They were knocked off during resharpening. Fifteen pieces showed signs of working fresh wood. 
microscopic wood residues remained attached to what had been the tool edges, Venditti said. Micro-use wear on a sharp-edged natural flint fragment shows that it was used to cut animal meat. Probably this flint was used in the butchering of the elephant, she says. Professor Nicholas Conard from Tübingen and head of the Schoeningen Research Project emphasized that this study shows how detailed analyses of traces of use and micro-residues can provide information from small artifacts that are often ignored. This is the first study to produce such comprehensive results from 300,000-year-old resharpening flakes. The prerequisite for this kind of research is that the artifacts are handled with extreme care from excavation throughout the analyses. In other words, researchers are once again noting that careful examination of all parts of ancient sites is necessary. I sometimes get, frankly, kind of nauseous when I think about how early archaeologists and anthropologists excavated sites. Um, there is, of course, the most one of the most famous examples of this was Heinrich Schliemann, um, who was both a um, very important figure in the world of archaeology and also a terrible villain in the um, area of archaeology. And um, if you ever want to know more about Schliemann, there's a great um, set of episodes uh, on him from the podcast Our Fake History. Um, but anyways, Schliemann basically found Troy, yes, but he basically dug a giant trench through all of the most important archaeological uh, evidence of the city that he was actually looking for because he thought that that was too high up in the sediment and thus too from too late of a period. And so he just dug a giant trench down to the area that he thought was where he wanted to be. And so... Uh, completely and utterly destroyed all of the um, in-situ uh, information that would have been there otherwise had the place been excavated by more modern-day archaeologists or anthropologists. Um, you know, and it's, it's one of those things where um, it's obviously an ongoing issue in both anthropology and archaeology that once you take something out of the ground, unless that thing was taken out of the ground by a professional archaeologist or anthropologist or paleontologist, so much of what can be known from that piece is destroyed. If you just pick it up or if you are a... um you know, basically tomb robber or fossil hunter that just digs things out to sell, uh, you know, in shops and on the black market. Um, I have a few fossils that I've bought over the years, but mostly I don't, even though I like fossils. Uh, I probably will at some point uh, when I have more room invest in some replicas, but, um, the idea of buying things that were, uh, almost certainly pulled out 
in a way that was completely uh, neglectful of their um, surroundings and of the information that is in that uh, surrounding, in the soil strata, knowing where it came from, all of that. Uh, not having any of that definitely is uh, distressing. And so I think that it's really important and I think that archaeologists do a really good job of it today. So if you look at, for instance, um, the terracotta warriors, you'll see that there are whole sections of the terracotta warriors that were not excavated. And that's because that is being left for people in the future with better technology, better preservation uh, abilities to then be able to make their own conclusions about that place. And so often at archaeological sites these days, you'll see parts of um, the site being left for other archaeologists in the future with better tools. Um, and, you know, modern tools and technology are already able to use much more than they were able to in the past. And they have a lot more non-destructive techniques like um, CAT scans and electron microscopy and things like that. And so it is really cool how much we are learning about the people who use these sites and how they lived. Okay, so moving forward a bit in time... We are going to talk about a couple of finds from the Denisovan. So the oldest Denisovan bones were discovered dating back to around 200,000 years. And what's really cool about this particular find is that they also found stone artifacts linked to this enigmatic species. Now, as a reminder, the Denisovans are an extinct branch of the Homo lineage, which would have been once widespread across Asia, the islands of Southeast Asia, and Oceania. Um, Oceania. Um, never sure how to pronounce that. Basically, Australia and New Zealand and the islands around that place. <laughs> We know that at least two distinct groups of Denisovans interbred with modern Homo sapiens and that they are an offshoot of um, Homo uh, neanderthalus. And so researchers examined 3,791 bone scraps from Denisova Cave in Russia which is where the original uh, Denisovan uh, remains were found and is one of only three places that they have been found so far. They looked for proteins known to be associated with Denisovans based on previous DNA research. They discovered five human bones, four containing enough DNA to sequence, identifying one as Neanderthal, and the remaining three as Denisovan. Two of the bones came from either the same person or two closely related individuals. We were extremely excited to identify three new Denisovan bones amongst the oldest layers of Denisova Cave, a study senior author, Katerina Duca, 
an archaeological scientist at the University of Vienna in Australia, told Live Science. We specifically targeted these layers where no other human fossils were found before, and our strategy worked. The team then aged the fossils based on the layers of earth in which they were found. Uh, Very, very important. This layer also contained an abundance of stone artifacts and animal remains. This is important because previous finds have either been found without such artifacts or mixed with potential Neanderthal material. This is the first time we can be sure that Denisovans were the makers of the archaeological remains we found associated with their bone fragments, Duca said. The area at this time would have been comparable to today, with broad-leafed forests and open steppe. Butchered and burnt remains found in the layer suggests that they would have fed on deer, gazelles, horses, bison, and woolly rhinoceroses. We can infer that Denisovans were well adapted to their environments, utilizing every resource available to them, Dukas said. Most of the tools are for scraping, probably for working animal skins. The rocks used to create the tools would have been available in the river just outside the entrance to the Denisova cave, and the river probably helped them in their hunting. The state's the site's strategic point in front of a water source and the entrance of a valley would have served as a great spot for hunting, Duca said. And of course, uh, that is why you also find the remains of uh, Neanderthals here. And I can't remember, but I think there's also at some you know later time, um, modern humans, uh, Homo sapiens, because it was apparently just a really great spot um, for being able to sort of set up and have the best things available to you, running water, uh, game, um, and the temperatures were apparently, uh, you know, perfectly livable. Now, the tools found do not resemble others found in North or Central Asia, do resemble those that have been found in Israel, dating to between 250,000 and 400,000 years ago. And this is a time period where many new technologies were being developed, including the routine use of fire. There is also evidence that they may have had direct competition with other predators, such as wolves and wild dogs. Their remains were also found in the cave. And so, um, yeah, life was definitely not uh, probably the easiest for them, but they were doing the best they could, uh, definitely being in a spot that was much in demand. And so, uh, speaking of Denisovans, this, this is the, uh, second find from the past year. A 150,000 year old human tooth from a suspected Denisovan young girl in Laos is the first evidence of their presence outside of either Russia or the Tibetan plateau. The molar, suspected to be from a member of the Denisovan species of humans, was found at the Tam Nu Hao Tu cave in the 
Annamite Mountains of Laos. It dates to the Middle Pleistocene and is the first to be found in Southeast Asia. Thoris Shackelford, an anthropologist from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, or Champaign, excuse me, and a co-author of the new study, notes her excitement at the find, which extends the list of environments in which the Denisovans, like modern humans and Neanderthals, could survive. Although we only have a few fossils representing the Denisovans, this new fossil from Laos demonstrates that much like modern humans, Denisovans were widespread and they were highly adaptable, Shackelford explained in an email. They lived in the cold Arctic temperatures of Siberia, in the cold, oxygen-poor, environment of the Tibetan Plateau, and now we know they were also living in the tropics of Southeast Asia. Now, the researchers note that it is further evidence for the extreme mixing of homo diversity during the middle to late Pleistocene in Southeast Asia. The area once was home to Homo erectus, Neanderthals, Homo florensiensis, Homo luzonensis, and modern humans, Homo sapiens, in addition to, of course, now Homo denisovans. And so I'm sure I've talked about this before, and I'm sure I will again, but we know the Denisovans were in this part of the world due to the genetic makeup of modern Southeast Asian and Oceania populations. I think I've talked about the um, Ita Magbacun, for instance. They are a Philippine ethnic group whose name I'm sure I uh, have mispronounced <laughs> that still have around 5% Denisovan DNA, and that's the highest of any group of modern humans in the world. So that's pretty uh, good evidence that uh, Denisovans were in Southeast Asia at some point in the past. And uh, the Laotian molar is only the 10th fossil to be found for Denisovans. So there's still a lot we don't know about them. The Annamite Mountains are filled with limestone caves. Every year, Shackelford and her colleagues send out geologists to explore the area for new spots that warrant paleontological investigation. In 2018, our geologists spent the morning surveying and returned to the site before lunch with their pockets full of sediment samples that they had collected from a potential new site, which we now know as Tam New How Two or Cobra Cave, Shackelford said. In these first samples, among fragments of fossil animal teeth, we found the tooth. The sediment in which the tooth was found have a date range between 164,000 and 131,000 years ago. A protein analysis pegged the tooth as being homo, but couldn't pin down the species. We do know that this is the tooth of a girl who died when she was between four and eight years old, said Shackelford. Since this tooth comes from a child, we are currently doing additional analyses of tooth growth and development. Now, the reason for identifying the tooth as Denisovan comes from morphological resemblances to teeth found 
on a partial Denisovan mandible from Tibet, including features that are found among Denisovan teeth, but not those of Neanderthals or modern humans. Among the human groups previously cited, the molar from Laos is closest to Neanderthals, and we know from paleogenetics that Denisovans were a sister group of Neanderthals, meaning that they were closely related and shared morphological features. Clement Zanoli, an expert on the evolution of human teeth, a co-author of the new study who works at the University of Bordeaux, explained, For these reasons, the most parsimonious hypothesis is that the tooth was found in Laos that was found in Laos belongs to a Denisovan individual. Now, uh, there is, of course, a chance that it could be from a Neanderthal, but that would make it the most southeastern Neanderthal fossil ever discovered. So again, parsimoniously, it is most likely that of a Denisovan individual. Now, uh, unfortunately, even though it's very awesome that it was found in this environment, because of this environment, the DNA is too degraded from exposure to tropical conditions. The harsh weather of Siberia and Tibet make it easier to preserve fossils. But not only does the fossil solidify the evidence that Denisovans were once in Southeast Asia, it confirms that Denisovans were present in this region and could have met with late Pleistocene modern humans, according to Zanoli. And it once again shows the range of environments that Denisovans were adapted to living in, much like their cousins, which actually adds to the mystery of why they suddenly disappeared around 50,000 years ago. And I was just thinking that this is definitely one of those uh, stories, one of those events in history that is a good answer to the, if you had a time machine, where would you go? Um, and I think that most people think of things much uh, closer to their uh, own lives. Um, you know, there's always the kill this or that dictator kind of answers or, um, you know, things that are closer to home. But I, I would much prefer to go someplace like uh, some sort of pivotal uh, turning point for the decline of Denisovans or for the decline of Neanderthals, um, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I think that would definitely be something worthy of observing. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. Um, okay. We are going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And we come back. Uh, we're going to move again a little forward in time. And we are going to talk about uh, some burial practices. So um that is definitely one of the things that we learn a lot about uh, in uh, especially sort of more ancient uh, peoples. We learn more a lot about them from their burial practices, from their grave goods, 
and things like that. And um, we're going to talk about a very old burial to begin with. So uh, do stay tuned. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7 here on Valley Free Radio or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as I said, we are going to be moving a little forward in time and uh, over to Africa. And so around 78,000 years ago, we uh, discovered the first documented Homo sapiens burial in Africa. And of course, by that, I mean, we discovered a 78,000 year old burial uh, very recently. (laughs) And so this burial was intentional and clearly held meaning for those who left the small child in a cave near the coast of modern day Kenya. Now, earlier deliberate burials from Europe and the Middle East date back to around 120,000 years ago, but this is almost certainly because there has been much more directed archaeology in Europe and the Middle East, especially when compared to Africa, despite it being the continent on which the species originated. 
sigh. (laughs) And so the child would have been around three when they died and their body was curled up on the side with the head having been placed on a rest or cushion. The remains have been named Utato, which is Swahili for child. Only humans treat the dead with this respect, this care, this tenderness, said paleoanthropologist Maria Martiton Torres, director of the National Center for Research on Human Evolution, or CENIA, in Burgos, Spain, who led the team that first discovered the ancient burial. This is some of the earliest evidence that we have in Africa about humans living in the physical and also in the symbolic world. Now, by humans, obviously, I just want to point out that I believe, at least, that she's talking about members of the uh, genus Homo, uh, because we do know that, for instance, Neanderthals also buried their dead. Now, the grave was first excavated in 2017 from the Panga Ya Saidi cave north of Mombasa, where it was taken as a solid block and flown from Kenya to Germany and then on to Burgos by Emmanuel Nadima of the National Museum of Kenya. At the time, they only knew that the block contained small bones. The Senia team used micro-CT to examine the block and created a detailed 3D model of its contents, which revealed the skull and bones of the small Homo sapiens child. Michael Pertaglia of the Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History in Jena, uh, that's Jena, Germany, helped excavate the sediment block from the Panga Yesaidi cave and is among the authors of the paper on the find in the journal Nature. He suggests the idea that earlier burials probably are waiting to be found in Africa, but as I noted, much less Paleolithic archaeology has been done in Africa compared to Europe and Asia. And in fact, some aspects of the burial are similar to those by both Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. Ancient stone flakes and other trace elements suggest the cave was a temporary shelter for groups of Homo sapiens, which again is similar to um, places found in Eurasia, according to Petraglia. The area around the body was deliberately dug out, making it a true burial rather than a funerary caching wherein the body is placed in an available niche. The remains show both signs of being shrouded by a since-decayed material, as well as having the child's head propped up by some sort of rest that has also since decayed away. Martinon Torres noted that the side burial with legs drawn up was common in ancient burials. And so we do find that uh, all over the world, a lot of... um, Early burials are all sort of in that side fetal position. Nicole Boivin, the director of archaeology at the Max Planck Institute in Jena, 
has worked at the Pagaya Saidi cave for about 10 years. It's an absolutely beautiful place. It's this cave system where parts of the roofs of the caves have collapsed, and this lets in sunshine. Vines are falling in, and there are a lot of plants and flowers and wildlife, by the told life science. The archaeologists were initially looking for traces of burials and artifacts from a later period when Indian Ocean trading was occurring up to 2,300 years ago but it soon became clear that there was a much longer period of habitation at the site. We have representation of archaeology across an extraordinary time span, Boivin said. We have an extraordinary cultural record with beautiful stone tools, lots of material culture, symbolic artifacts, and a lot of beautifully preserved bone. Nadima said that the cave is still considered sacred by some Kenyans today, as it most likely was for the people who buried Mutato. It is, it still has a very strong cultural and spiritual connection with the local people. They still use this place for rituals of worship and to seek healing, he said. And so, yeah, that is very, very cool and interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, it's never cool to find, uh, you know, remains. Uh, it's the wrong word, obviously, but because we can learn so many interesting things about uh, the people from their remains, um, you know, it's it's always exciting to be able to do that. Um, and especially for people who, uh, are so far removed from us in some ways that it's a little less fraught. Um, obviously there is a huge, huge issue, uh, currently in, um, archaeology, especially and anthropology to an extent, um, well, probably to the same extent, I should say, um, except for with very old remains that, um, you know, a lot of people who have had their ancestors, their direct ancestors, um, excavated, put on display and things like that. And, um, you know, that's, that's a really hard, uh, circle to square when it comes to, um, the, balance between wanting to know more about people and respecting the direct wishes of their direct ancestors. And so there's a lot of balance that has to be created there. Not so much with these kinds of ancient remains, especially from uh, the branches of Homo that did not end up making it to the present day. But it's still there. You know, this is still a cave that people, for instance, here are still using. And so to balance having archaeological excavations in a place that is still featuring uh, active worship and active interest, I could imagine there's definitely some push and pull there that is important to negotiate because... Um, 
I think that we have finally figured out that when we are in places with other cultures, uh, with older cultures, that we have to be more respectful than we have been in the past. Um, I think that there's a lot of great work being done um, in America with um, a lot of archaeologists teaming up with Native uh, American um, tribes and uh, groups and uh, people who are indigenous to the land uh, that we are currently on, or at least that I am currently on. And I think that that's really important. And I think we really need to be doing that around the world because obviously uh, colonialism is a huge thing that continues to be a huge stain upon the land. And we need to be really cognizant not to uh, continue colonialism by mistake. Uh, and I generally do think that in most modern cases, it's not really intentional. People are not uh, actively trying to disrespect others. They're actively trying to find out more. And uh, Western knowledge and Western interest in knowledge is often at odds with other people, uh, you know, uh, especially, obviously, more of what I know is about uh, Native uh indigenous people in the Americas and a lot of uh, people in North America, especially say, we already know what our ancestors did. Why do we have to have scientific evidence to back it up? We still have our stories. We still have information about it. And so, um, yeah. Okay. I'm going to uh, move on now. <laughs> Sorry for that little interlude. Uh, and so, yeah. We are going to continue and talk again about a different burial practice because, again, it does tell us a lot about um, ancient cultures. And so researchers are continuing to learn more fascinating things about the ancient people who inhabited what has been called the world's first city. And so this is Ketalhayuk in central Anatolia, which is in Turkey, and modern-day Turkey. This settlement shows occupation dating back to 9,000 years ago. It covers an area of 13 hectares and features densely packed mud-brick buildings. Now, the newest research focuses on ritual activities, including intramural built burials, with some skeletons showing signs of pigmentation that are tied to wall painting. And so complex funerary practices are found in the deep past, including, as mentioned before, with Neanderthals. Now, we have so few Denisovan sites and artifacts, as I've talked about uh, extensively tonight, that I don't think we found any evidence there, but I would assume that they also practiced funerary rites at some point, um, especially since they are a sister species of Neanderthals who did do that. Now, practices that were widespread in the second half of the 9th and 8th century BC show that there were complex and sometimes mysterious symbolic activities concerning the dead at Katalhayuk. This included 
secondary funeral treatments, retrieval and circulation of skeletal parts such as skulls, and the use of pigments both to adorn skeletons and buildings. And they actually find evidence of uh, this sort of secondary funeral treatments in other places like the Middle East around this time as well. A recent paper in the journal Scientific Reports by an international team, including members from the University of Bern in Switzerland, provides the first analysis of pigments used in funerary and architectural contexts from Katalhayuk. Senior author Marco Malella of the Department of Physical Anthropology at the Universe at the Institute for Forensic Medicine at Bern notes. These results reveal exciting insights about the association between the use of colorants, funerary rituals, and living spaces in this fascinating society. Malella and his team work on identifying the age and sex of the remains, as well as exploring violent injuries or special treatment of the bodies. The team found that red ochre was the most commonly used pigment at Chatelhayuk, I forgot it's a CH sound, sorry about that, and was present on all categories of skeletons, men, women, and children. This is unsurprising as red ochre is, I believe, pretty much the oldest ritually important pigment with use dating back to 350,000 BC. And so um, definitely very, very old. Uh, Cinnabar, which I think is also very, very old, was additionally associated mainly with male skeletons and blue-green pigments were associated with women. Now, fascinatingly, the number of burials in a building seemed to correlate with the number of subsequent layers of architectural paint. This suggests a connection between funerary practices of body deposition and the painting of domestic spaces. So basically, when they buried someone, they also painted on the walls of the house, Melilla says. In addition, some remains were retrieved and circulated for some time before being reburied. The second burial was also associated with wall painting. Intriguingly, only a selection of individuals were buried with colorants, and only a part of the individuals had their bones circulated among the community. Notes Malella, the criteria guiding the selection of these individuals escape our understanding for now which makes these findings even more interesting. Our study shows that this selection was not related to age or sex. What is clear, however, is that visual, visual expression, ritual performance, and symbolic associations were elements of shared long-term sociocultural practices in this Neolithic society. And... While we may have very different funerary practices today, there are actually many traditional societies who continue to have a very different and much closer relationship to the dead, uh, though many 
uh, societies in general have a much closer relationship to the dead than, for instance, uh, Americans do, at least sort of generic Americans. Now, the fo- most famous example of this is probably the Taraja people of Indonesia. And so they actually uh, mummify their dead and they keep them in the home for quite some time. Um, they will bring them food and tobacco and change their clothes and keep them in their bed. Um, and they do this for quite a long time until, I believe, until a priest uh, decides that they are actively dead, basically. Um, and then even after that, even after they're eventually buried, they're actually then exhumed and uh, they're given new clothes, new offerings and reburied. And I think that they do this several times that, you know, this continually happens where you, um, you know, go and you dig up um, the body and you rewrap it in new burial clothes and uh, just continue to kind of take care of the person. Um, because even though they're dead, they're still a part of you and a part of your uh, community, which I think is really, really interesting. Uh, I think that obviously Americans tend to have a pretty uh, unhealthy relationship with death. Uh, I think that we don't, um, that we're really, uh, death avoidant, which obviously you want to be death avoidant in your everyday life, but we don't like to talk about death. We don't really, um, we have very weird rituals around death. Um, and, uh, one of the weird things is that I didn't know, and, uh, I haven't done extensive research on this. It's completely anecdotal. But I think we might be one of the few places where you have open caskets, um, where people actually are expected to go to like a week and go up and uh, look at the body uh, in repose. I don't think that other places do that, even in, say, England. Um, I'd have to do more research. Please don't quote me on that. But um, I know that human, uh, sorry, Americans are very... Um, we have a very uh, strained relationship with the concept of death, wherein other uh, cultures are much more able to kind of hold the idea of death in a much less strained and um, adversarial way. And I think we could probably learn from that, <laughs> frankly, um, but also... Uh, we should do a lot more than we do to prevent death in this country. Um, but that is a completely other subject and we are not talking about that tonight. Um, so anyways, <laughs> uh, so we are finally going to move forward in time and talk about researchers investigating the genomes of ancient South Americans and uh, we're going to talk about South America and the Americas uh, and the peopling of those continents. And so researchers investigating the genomes of ancient South Americans have found the signature of DNA inherited from both Neanderthals 
and Denisovans. Now, the researchers looked at remains from Brazil, Panama, and Uruguay, and not only made this discovery, but also learned more about the migratory patterns of these early settlers. The presence of these ancestries in ancient Native American genomes can be explained by episodes of interbreeding between anatomically modern humans and Neanderthals and Denisovans, which should have occurred millennia before the first human groups entered the Americas through Beringia, said Andre Luis Campolo, Campelo dos Santos, an archaeologist at Florida Atlantic University and the study's lead author. The findings both support the north-to-south migration pattern towards South America, as well as indicating that some migrations may have occurred from south to north along the Atlantic coast. The team compared the ancient DNA from South America with that of ancient remains from across the U.S., including Alaska, as well as from Peru and Chile. Two whole genomes from teeth found in northern Brazil were newly sequenced. The team also looked at present-day worldwide genomes and DNA sequences taken from Denisovan and Neanderthal remains from Russia. These remains are tens of thousands of years old, while some of the ancient South American remains were just a thousand years old. The team found both sections of Neanderthal and Denisovan DNA, as well as Australasian signals in one set of remains from Panama. This signature had previously been detected in remains from southeast Brazil and is found today in the Sirui people of Amazonia. The extra amount of Denisovan ancestry in some populations does seem to fit with extra ancestry from Papuans, so in that sense, the data is consistent, said Luritz Skov, a researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, who was not affiliated with the recent study. In the future, it will be interesting if we could figure out exactly when this Australasian ancestry component appeared in the Americas and how much Denisovan Neanderthal it brings with it. Now, interestingly, the ancient remains from Panama and Brazil had more Denisovan signals in their genome than Neanderthal. Now, the opposite is true for present-day humans. We have a stronger Neanderthal signal, other than I think that uh, one particular group of people with the very strong Denisovan, though I don't know what their percentage of Neanderthal is, so it might still hold. Study co-author John Lindo, an anthropologist at Emory University, notes that the Denisovan DNA was added as long as 40,000 years ago and persisted in the DNA profile of an individual from Uruguay who died around 1,500 years ago. The Australasian signal is not found in the remains from North America, suggesting that the ancestors of those individuals in South America did not cross via the ancient land bridge Beringia. The Australasian ancestry in the Americas is perplexing, as this has been reported for isolated samples widely separated by space and time and doesn't show a clear pattern, said Isif Lazaridis 
a geneticist at Harvard University, who again was not affiliated with the work. Such ancestry may have spread with Austronesian migrants across the Pacific, as Austronesians were able seafarers, Lazarides said, noting that despite the possibility, there is no evidence Austronesians made it to the Americas. The idea that the Americas, especially South America, was populated using a coastal route has actually gained more evidence in recent times. And so a different group of researchers uh, now believe that an ice wall up to 300 stories high, which 300 stories is higher than the Burj Khalifa, once separated Asia and the Americas during a period where people were colonizing the continents. Previous ideas of a land bridge were bolstered by the idea that the Clovis people were the first to arrive in the Americas around 13,400 years ago, when there would have been a way between the ice sheets. But in recent years, there have been many finds that suggest pre-Clovis presence in North America. For instance, in 2020, Archaeologists found stone artifacts in central Mexico dating to at least 26,500 years ago, and six and 60 ancient footprints were discovered in 2021 in New Mexico that suggest humans were walking in the mud some 23,000 years ago in that area. I think I talked about that. The opening of the ice corridor was thought to have occurred between 14,000 and 15,000 years ago, which suggests now that those people came via a coastal route. New research of 64 geological samples taken from six locations along where the ice-free corridor was thought to have existed, um, an area spanning over 745 miles for the samples, suggests that the ice-free corridor did not open up until around 13,800 years ago. The researchers looked at glacial erratics, stones carried by the glacier like pebbles in a riverbed. They then determined how long the rocks were exposed on the surface, giving an age for how long they'd been ice-free by looking at levels of radioactive elements generated when the rocks were exposed to high-energy rays from space. They found that the ice sheets may have been 1,500 to 3,000 feet feet high in the area where they covered the ice-free corridor, study lead author Jory Clark, a geologist and archaeologist at Oregon State University, told Live Science. Now again, the Burj Khalifa is around 2,722 feet high, so it's in the ballpark. Um, it's, it's higher than the low estimate, but lower than the high estimate. Um, so you know, that's a pretty good um, stand-in, I guess. We now have robust evidence that the ice-free corridor was not open and available for the first peopling of the Americas, Clark said. Still, there is a lot to learn about whether they actually did come down the coastal route, and if so, how did they travel? We need to find archaeological sites from the area. And so it may have been that a wave of settlers did indeed come down the ice-free corridor after it opened, 
But again, more archaeological sites will need to be excavated in order to confirm the timeline. John Hoffaker, a paleoanthropologist at the University of Colorado at Boulder, who was not involved in the study, uh, suggests that it may end up being true that the earliest people arrived even before the the last Ice Age began. If sites are found to suggest this in the future, the simplest explanation is that they followed an interior route through the wide ice-free corridor that was present before 30,000 years ago. And so that's an interesting thought that they could have come even before the ice sheet really got going. Um, So yeah, interesting food for thought. And that brings us to the end of our uh, journey tonight. Uh, So yes, you have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.